All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. It is Saturday, March 19th, and round one in the NCAA tournament in the books. And before I get to a couple of topics around March Madness, I want to start with the big trade in the NFL. Packers send Devontae Adams to the Las Vegas Raiders for a first and second round pick. Devontae Adams now has the biggest non-quarterback contract in NFL history. And here are my thoughts. It's very rare that a receiver decides to leave an elite quarterback. You don't see it very often because most receivers realize that their productivity is highly, highly tied to how good their quarterback is. And as a guy that has seen Derek Carr play a ton of games in the AFC West against the Chiefs, there's a very big gap between Rodgers and Carr. That's not breaking news. Rodgers much more precise on those back shoulder throws, fitting into tight windows. Derek Carr is more of a throw into space, receiver, run under it type quarterback. Devontae Adams getting older is not going to be that deep threat that he was with the Packers. He turns 30 this coming year. And there's a lot of signs, a lot of other examples of receivers on Green Bay leaving. And actually, weirdly enough, they leave for the Raiders a lot of the time and their production plummets. For example, Jordy Nelson, remember him? White dude, buzz cut. There's a three, four-year stretch where the back shoulder throw between him and Rodgers is basically a 20-yard handoff. So let's look at him from his last three years with the Packers, 2014, hurt in 2015, then 2016 and 2017. On average, 1,100 yards, 11 touchdowns. He leaves for the Raiders at age 32, 700 yards, three touchdowns out of the league after that. Let's go to Greg Jennings. Remember that? He played football before he did hot takes on FS1. Last two full years with the Packers, 2010 and 2011, averaged 1,100 yards, 11 touchdowns, leaves for the Vikings, and 800 yards, four touchdowns, age 30 in his first year, another 700-yard performance, and then 32, he's out of the league. Another example, James Jones, remember him? His last two years before leaving for the Raiders at age 28 and 29, averages 800 yards, 13 yards of reception, and eight touchdowns, goes to the Raiders, 600 yards, nine yards a reception, 40 yards per game, only six touchdowns. Then he comes back to Green Bay at age 31 and his production immediately gets right back up to 890 yards and eight touchdowns, 18 yards a reception, double what he had the year before in Oakland without Aaron Rodgers. So we have, there's so many examples of these receivers leaving Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers and their production plummets. And Devontae Adams, obviously better than the three receivers I just mentioned, But when you look at the division and you look at where Devontae Adams was with his stats, I mean, 73 touchdown catches, 8,000 yards, almost 700 receptions. He was really getting to a point where if he has five more, you know, really good years, he's starting to get into the record books of one of the best receivers ever. And as a guy, he seems like really competitive, wants to win, wants to put up stats. He's going to see those numbers plummet, even if Derek Carr continues to be, you know, a solid well above average quarterback because guess what there's also Hunter Renfro who last year had 100 catches over a thousand yards nine touchdowns they're not going to stop throwing to Hunter Renfro and as Adams gets into his 30s 31 32 and he's starting to look around and he's not having the success he used to he's in a really tough division he's not automatically you know sweeping his division like he was in the NFC North not getting these home playoff games not all these primetime games, not to mention the random like weird Derek Carr arm punts and all the mistakes he's going to make that Rodgers never made. I think Adams, a year or two into this, is really going to realize 
how big of a difference there was between Rodgers and Carr. And I just don't see this working out for the Raiders paying a receiver $28 million a year when he's 32, 33 years old. I mean, how many times has that ever worked out? A lot of these receivers, I mean, your quarterback, quarterbacks have been able to expand how long they've played because of all the rule changes, but still the receivers. We saw with Julio Jones, the most comparable receiver to Devontae Adams, big guy, good route runner, also good speed. His production halved when he turned 31, 32 years old. And I think the same is going to happen with Adams. And I see this, you know, you're going to get two good years, but overall, I think this is a bad contract. And I don't think Adams is going to be the happiest when he sees up close in person the difference between an Aaron Rodgers and a Derek Carr. Let's talk some hoops. Okay, let's start with Thursday's games. The first big upset was Iowa losing to the University of Richmond 5-12 matchup. And what this came down to was the guard play between the two teams. Richmond, you know, you saw after the first half, it's 29-28, low scoring. And you're immediately like, okay, this is a Richmond-style game. They're not the most explosive offense. Meanwhile, Iowa can drop 120 points in a game. And what this came down to was the guard play in that Gilliard was able to more consistently get Richmond a decent shot, a decent look. Meanwhile, Iowa was struggling. They didn't have a guard. Like, Bohannon is a three-point shooter, right? So he takes eight shots. Seven of them are three-point shooters. They never had a point guard this year, and it really showed in this game, to get them into sets and to get decent looks. It was always a struggle to get it inside to Keegan Murray. Nothing came easy. And Gilliard goes 24 points, six rebounds, six assists. Meanwhile, the two Iowa starting guards play 52 minutes. They go four for 13, 12 points, four assists. And that was the big difference was the guard play. You could see Iowa getting frustrated. I mean, after the first half, Jordan Bohannon's like freaking out because somebody didn't pass it to him in the corner for a three. And you see in the tournament, these teams really take on the personality of their coach where McCaffrey is always worked up. And then Bohannon, who you would think would be more composed being like 24 years old, but he's getting all worked up. You know, in the halftime, everyone was like yelling at each other. And Richmond, meanwhile, stayed collected. They have a point guard that can control things, control the tempo. They kept it low scoring. They kept Iowa forwards off the boards, out of the paint enough to win this game and Iowa shoots 20% from three, six of 29. It wasn't really like a bad shooting game. It's just a lot of those shots were contested. And so Iowa gets upset in 12-5 matchup. Back-to-back disappointing seasons for Iowa. So last year, I forgot about this game. They were the two seed and they lost by 15 to the seven seed. I think Oregon was either seven or 10 seed, but they lost by 15 to Oregon last year. So back-to-back years of being upset by, you know, a, a a significantly lower seed than them. And McCaffrey and Iowa have yet to get to the Sweet 16. They've yet to win multiple games in the tournament. I thought Bohannon and some of the Iowa players were taking way too many victory laps after winning the Big Ten uh, championship, going on Twitter, being like talking to all the haters. I didn't like that. Nobody really remembers who wins the conference tournaments. It's all about the NCAA tournament. And Iowa was eventually exposed. I should have known. They, they had to rely on a game-winning shot to beat UVA and any team that needs that to beat this UVA team can't be that good but they are exposed as a team that high octane offense but when it comes down when it's a slow paced half court game if you don't have a point guard that can get you into your sets you get really exposed Richmond had that Iowa didn't Richmond moves on the biggest upset of Thursday was obviously St. Peter's 15 seed taking down Kentucky the two seed there are a couple different spots 
where you thought Kentucky was going to pull away with it. And ultimately, a lot of this came down to free throw shooting. And you're seeing this across all of these games where if you can hit your free throws in these half-court games where it's really tough to score, it makes a big difference. Kentucky from the free throw line, 23 of 35, 65%. One of six in overtime. Their guards, Grady and Ty Ty, go three of 19 from the field, 13 points. Meanwhile, St. Peter's have two guards, Banks and Edert, combined for 47 points. And you got to tip your cap to St. Peter's. They made some big shots when Kentucky was like up three. The white dude, Edert, hits a big three. They have drives to the rim where they're finishing. This was not, you know, this was a team that was just all these guys thought they were going to win, and they came out, and they didn't back down. There's spots with you know, 25, 30 seconds left when they're losing. Kentucky gets an offensive rebound, drills a three. Now you're all of a sudden you're down two after being up one. They could have freaked out. We see this a lot in college basketball games where you need a bucket. Everyone's freaking out. Someone dribbles off their toe. You pass it, double team. All of a sudden there's six seconds left, and you jack up a three. St. Peter's seemed really well coached and relaxed and, and calm in those places. And so Coach Cal eliminated. He hasn't been to a Final Four since 2014-2015. Um, you know, his past few runs, we'll start with the, the – so he goes Final Four in 2014, then loses in the round of 32, loses in the Elite Eight, Sweet 16, Elite Eight, misses the tournament. And then this year, loses in the first round to a 15 seed. And everyone had Kentucky winning their bracket. This just shows that nobody – you know, everyone on ESPN, everyone on all the podcast, everyone loved this Kentucky team. They love the guards, the, the uh, centers. What this showed is no one knows really what they're talking about because no one knows how 18, 19, 20-year-olds are going to play under pressure in these tournament games. And this is, this is awesome. This is why we like March Madness. A 15, St. Peter's, who they could not sniff the court playing for Kentucky, and they go blow for blow and knock off the Kentucky Wildcats. Great, great March Madness game. Okay, let's shift to Friday's game. Not as exciting as some of the games on Thursday, but I wanted to start with the Miami game. And if you've never watched a Miami game, if you've never wagered on a Miami game, it is a roller coaster ride. Like, you have not lived the college basketball experience if you have not watched a Miami game. So up and down. I think I said this a couple months ago. Miami is a team, if they're up 30 or if they're down 30, the game is far from over. And this was a classic example of that. So they were... They're up like 11 at halftime, and then immediately USC erases that that lead. Like two minutes into the second half, the uh, Isaiah Mobley guy, the brother of Evan Mobley, who went to the Cavs third overall last year, really good, really good player, really good passer. But Miami, they're up seven with 38 seconds left. Okay, up seven with 38 seconds left. I think the win probability was like 98.9%. And... USC comes back and ties it. Then Charlie Moore, who's 24 years old. This is his fourth team he's been on. So many old guys. McGusty, I think, is like 24. Isaiah Wong had a really good game, but uh, Moore gets fouled and shoots a couple free throws. And then we almost have a Gordon Hayward situation coming back where USC almost hits a half quarter to win it at the buzzer. But here's the insane thing. There's two different stats. One points for one team to win by, like, if you saw this stat, you'd be like, there's no way this team could win. And that was from three. Miami goes one for 14 from three, 7%. Meanwhile, USC goes nine for 20 from three, 45%. That's a difference of 24 points from three. But here's the stat that goes Miami's way. Miami turns the ball over just three times. USC turns it over 18 times. This game was crazy. I've never seen these statistics so out of whack for such a close game. Miami pulls it out, wins by two. And my double-digit darling 10-seed Miami still 
alive in the tournament to the round of 32. Next game I want to talk about, Texas beats Virginia Tech. I should have seen this coming. I, was, I got caught in the hype just like we did with Iowa. They win the conference tournament, and I actually think these teams that won the conference tournament seemed a little tired, but this game came down to really Jimmy's and Joe's. And do you guys remember Charles Barkley in like 2014, 2015, when he was talking about the Warriors and saying, hey, these little guards, little Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, they're going to get pushed around, manhandled when they're in the playoffs. Well, what Charles was imagining did not happen to the Warriors, but it happened in this Virginia Tech-Texas game where the three guards, uh, the three white dudes, Couture, Storm Murphy, and like DePaul or something like that, they got roughed up. Texas was bigger. They're like pushing these guys around. You've seen throughout this tournament, the refs really aren't blowing the whistle that much, especially when you're when you're guarding on ball and they're getting you know pushed around. There weren't many open looks, and Virginia Tech was only able to attempt 12 three pointers. And you remember those Duke UNC games? They're shooting like 20 plus threes. This game just 12. They only make four. Meanwhile, Texas goes 10 for 19 from three, and this just came down to points in the paint. Texas is a bigger, stronger, better athlete teams. And they're turning Virginia Tech over a little bit more, getting them on the boards. And that was it for Virginia Tech. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back in a few days to recap the round of 32 and preview the Sweet 16. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I'll talk to you in a few days. See you.